Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. As me and Annie talked about last week, we are knee-deep in some of the research we're doing. We're getting ready to release this special episode on Injured Cold for the Mothman weekend that was canceled. But we wanted to release an episode, actually a throwback. We're going to go back to last year when me and Annie talked about a serial killer named Danny Rawling. And he was known as the Gainesville Ripper. And this is that episode. This was recorded last year. It was released. It was episode 10 of season 1. And we're going to go back. We're going to replay it. For those of you who never heard it, you can't find it anymore because we uh, did away with our SoundCloud account and that's where it was uh, streamed from. But we're going to go ahead and release it again for you guys. So sit back, enjoy this special throwback episode. And let me tell you, the beginning is very creepy because you get to hear Danny Rawling himself sitting in a campfire recording the music that he wrote. So guys, enjoy. The following episode contains material of a graphic nature and coarse language. Listener discretion is advised. To Serial Spirits, the podcast. episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It's me, your host, Brendan Shane. Joining me as always is my beautiful, lovely co-host. Annie Weaves, what's up, Shay Bay? Ten times, Weaves, ten times we've sat in front of these mics in this room in beautiful Huntington, West Virginia, and this is episode 10. It's a milestone in the podcasting world, at least for us. I mean, we've, we we got 10 episodes under our belt. Actually, this is episode 11 if you count the two-part Herb Baumeister part, but episode 10, here we are with another awesome case, and we are super excited to bring it to you. It's sunny outside, the weather's finally warming up, it's getting to be spring, and I'm super stoked to record this episode because it's going to be a good one. Listen, podcasting is a little more difficult than I anticipated. Uh, you get a lot of harsh reviews for podcasting, and we love what we talk about. And we are very appreciative of everyone who has come on and left us positive comments. So if you guys like and listen to us, 
please feel free to share it. Go to our Facebook page. Give us a five-star review. It's the best way that you can help spread the word about Serial Spirits. Also, if you have stories that you would like to hear us cover, please don't hesitate to comment or message us and let us know. We are always open for suggestions. Always. And we, you know, plan on doing things a little differently now. We want to bring on more guests. We want to bring in people who have, you know, experienced some of these crimes firsthand or have investigated these crimes when we we cover the true crime stuff. We also want to talk more about the conspiracy theory world and all the mysteries that surround everything that we are so interested in. You know, me and Annie both have been involved in the paranormal field with both of our, you know, careers combined. We have 20 plus years in the paranormal field. And, you know, it's not just about ghosts. We, we are interested in cryptids. We're interested in UFOs, everything. And we want to bring a lot more into that to the realm of the podcasting community. And we want you to be part of it. So like Annie said, if there's a story that you want to hear, something that you wish we could cover, please email us. Please let us know. Give us ratings. Give us reviews. Tell us what we do wrong. Tell us what we do right because we're open to any suggestions whatsoever. Something else that I want to mention, you know, we had our good friend uh, Todd Matthews on. I've had him on a couple of my shows now and Darla Jackson also came on. We talked about the Mountain Jane Doe case. If you guys haven't had a chance to listen to that, uh, you can find that on our page. What I would like to throw out to our listeners is as far as the true crime realm is concerned, we want to bring cases to light that have not been overly covered. So what we would like for listeners to do, if you are or if you know someone who is the family member of an unsolved murder, a missing persons case, and you would like us to help cover your story, please reach out to us. The one thing that Todd mentioned in his working with the Doe Network and Name Us is that the only way that these crimes and cases will ever be solved is to keep them in the limelight, keep the media going about these cases. So if you know or if you are someone who has been a part of one of these cold cases and you need your case covered, please reach out to us because that is something that we want to do. We want to help these families who have been a part of these crimes. So please reach out to us. And all these stories have small beginnings. You know, you start on a small platform and they just, you know, it roller coasters down. And the more people that listen to these podcasts, the more cases become in the limelight again. Like look at Up and Vanished with uh, Tara Grinstead. That that whole case has rolled on and they've actually, you know, got two suspects in custody at this moment because somebody decided that they were going to cover a cold case. If Payne Lindsay had never covered that case, do you think these guys would have ever come to justice? Probably not. Eventually, maybe something might have happened, but it brought it back into the, the spotlight. It became a national spotlight again. And here we are. 12, almost 12 years later, and they finally are getting ready to go to court with the murder of Tara This is Grinstead. the only way that you will ever keep these cases hot and prevent them from going cold is to make people aware of them. So please, we would love to help you do that. And if you're a ghost hunter or you're a paranormal enthusiast and you want to be on the show, please message us. You know, we're always open to all that kind of stuff, too. I uh, have lended um, my my uh, self uh, a couple times to the uh, unbelievers podcast it's a spinoff of my my favorite you podcast, podcast whore. my my favorite podcast the unbelievable podcast and you know uh the whole community of the people who listen to this show they're called unbelievers and we've talked about them a lot because we did a whole uh episode uh what was it episode three the mothman festival when we went to the mothman i think so yeah, yeah episode three and um we uh we had you know, told the story about the unbelievers and, uh, they started their own podcast called the unbelievers podcast. And, uh, we we're going to have them on, uh, covering a couple weird, maybe alien stories about alien sex or alien dicks and that alien kind of thing. Boners? Alien boners. What? Did you just see my ears perk up? No, I saw your ears perk up. Your eyes got all wide and like yeah. alien boners. Alien boners. Maybe that's officially what we'll call that episode with alien Russ. Alien boners. Yeah. Right. We're going to have Russ, boners. Treya, maybe Rob, you know, so uh, yeah, guys, whatever. Just please just 
just keep the emails coming, whether they're hate emails or whether they're, you know, praising emails. We love them all. We Listen, them we've, all. we've listened to other podcasts that say it takes a while to get your rhythm. And we feel like we're finding our ri- rhythm and now we're welcoming, you know, we're opening ourselves up to, uh, to the world of podcasting. So thanks for sticking with us. And we've got a great episode. To, I, I hate, okay. I shouldn't say a great episode. We've got a really messed up episode tonight, Shay. Yeah, for episode 10, we're going to go down um, to Florida, to Gainesville, Florida, right here in the old United States. And I have to say United States because we air on the Paranormal UK radio network. And uh, we have a lot of European listeners, too. So we're going to go to the great state of Florida, the sunshine state right here in the old United States of America. And at the beginning of the episode, we heard a little bit from this man we're going to cover. He had the moniker, the Gainesville Ripper. And that was his original music. And he has the voice of an angel, which is so scary because he sounds so good, right, Weebs? I mean, you heard that. How messed up. It's so messed up. There are so many clips that we are going to cover throughout this show. And every time you listen to him, once you know the story, it just, it chills you so deep down to your core to know the depravity of this man. But what he was doing, making music, I, I can't even go there just yet because it's so messed up you almost can't believe it well speaking of music this is how i discover i can't i never even heard of this guy before and one day i was going down my wormhole of weirdness on youtube because i look up a lot of music because i grew up from i'm from a very musical family i've been in bands my whole life and i'm going through and all of a sudden this this thing popped up and i'm listening to this thing i was like man these lyrics are kind of cool the recording is fucking shitty, but then I see a bunch of people covering this song and I'm like, what's going on here? So I look up the guy and he turns out he's a serial killer. I'm like, oh my God. So a couple weeks go by and me and Annie are having a lazy Sunday and we're watching our normal true crime, you know, TV shows. And there's a show called Mark of a Killer and they cut, I hear this song. And I'm like, wow, that's weird. That's weird that I'm hearing this song. And then they cover, they're telling the story of this guy. So let's get into him right now. Right, Weebs? What's his name? Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. The Gainesville Ripper. Let's get into the Gainesville Ripper right now. All that coming together in that short space of 72 hours, it just causes a sense of um, it's never going to end. The reality of opening up the door and finding that something really has gone wrong, it's, um, it's frightening. Students flee back to their hometowns. For something to happen so close to home, it makes me afraid. A media throng descends to report their tragedy to every home in the nation. Folks, let's be sensitive to our needs and trying to get, get a hold of them. Let's be sensitive to these families because they're going to be going through absolute hell. The mellow college community is transformed into an armed camp. But then there were the, the people who were desperate to feel safe, and they would go to the gun stores, the pawn shops, and get weapons. Um, all the gun stores at Gainesville and the surrounding area were totally sold out of guns. Fear and rumor spreads. The killer was a pizza delivery man. He wore a police uniform. He was a doctor. Each whisper is more outlandish than the one before. For me to stand up in front of cameras or microphones and tell people to slow down, be calm, you know, do these things to be safe, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh my God, get out of town. As details of the brutality leak out, the media gives the killer a nickname. The Gainesville Ripper. So here we are, Weebs, going to be talking about Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. And you, you know all about this guy, don't you? So, Shay, I've got a question for you. Yeah. Do you know if any of your favorite slasher flicks were based on true stories? Yeah, there's a lot of them that I know were based on true stories, but I'm sure there's probably one based on the Gainesville Ripper. So do you remember the 1996 movie Scream? Yes, unfortunately I do. It was such a worldwide phenomenon, and they didn't just make one. They made what, four? Oh, David Arquette. Oh, yeah, He's David Arquette, Courtney Cox. of the horror flick genre after uh, the Scream series. I don't know how many there were. 
but the story that we're going to tell you today was the inspiration for that gore-filled flick. We're going to tell you the story of Danny Rowling, the Gainesville Ripper. Did he wear that stupid mask or that was just added in there for Hollywood effects? No, it was just that was total Hollywood effect. All right. Just a normal person couldn't kill Drew Barrymore, right? No, 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 no. Exactly. He had to wear that mask. E.T. phone home. Danny Rowling was a native of Shreveport, Louisiana, who confessed to murdering, raping, and mutilating eight victims between 1989 and 1990. Rowling's horrific crimes, along with his bizarre behavior after his arrest and during his trials, earned him the media attention that he openly craved his motive to be, quote, a superstar like Ted Bundy. However, maybe a more appropriate moniker, Shay, should have been the singing serial killer. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. He was a singer. And like I said at the beginning of the episode, he had a vo- He has an incredible voice, an incredible voice. I'm not praising the guy, but he had an incredible voice and a, and, and a very well, uh, he could write very well because his lyrics are pretty, pretty oh, good yeah. too. We're, we're going to talk all about oh, that. Oh, yes. So Rowling was born in Louisiana in 1954 to a Shreveport police officer, James, and his wife, Claudia. According to reports, James was an abusive sack of shit who regularly abused Claudia and told Danny constantly that he was unwanted. Claudia attempted numerous times to leave Danny, but she always returned. Was that the actual quote that was given, sack of shit? Or no, that- that's my own quote, and feel free to use it for the rest of the show. So sack of shit. Because I feel like this is where a lot of Rowling's depravity and crimes come from, his sack of shit father. That could probably be another a highlight for serial spirits, could be like, put it on a t-shirt, like, quote, unquote, sack of shit, weebs. Exactly. Multiple charges were filed, including Claudia reporting to a local hospital after claiming that James tried to make her cut herself with a razor blade and Danny being handcuffed by his father and taken away by police just because James was embarrassed by him. So his father is a police officer in Shreveport, Louisiana. He abuses his mother. He abuses the children and then um, is kind of let go because, you know, the whole, what do you call it? The blue shield or whatever. Yeah, the blue wall of silence. Yeah, the blue wall of silence. So he even got local law enforcement in on arresting Danny as a teenager and having him taken away. So was this like a control thing? Like he made his wife cut herself with razor blades to be controlling or because he had like some sexual like sado addiction or something like that? I have no idea. Honestly, I think the guy was just a piece of garbage and he abused his power against his family. And um, he, he was just he was a terrible person. Sack of shit. He was a sack of shit. As an adolescent, Rowling's abuse as a child began to show itself after he was arrested multiple times for robberies and peeping Tom accusations. His first documented assault came in 1990 when he was in an altercation with his father, a fight which resulted in James losing an eye and an ear. Little did they know at that time, Rowling's murderous habits had already begun. When I first, uh, when we were going over some of the research for this and you told me, you know, we, cause we, we, we do these things and Annie does a lot of the research and we will talk a little bit about the cases or the, the guy that we're covering. If it's a serial killer, we were talking about how he did this to his father. And I was like, man, that that's terrible. Like this guy mutilated his own father, man, what a, what a sack of shit he must've been. And then you hear all the stuff that his dad did and you're like, well, now it makes sense. No, his dad totally deserved to lose an eye and an ear for the way that he treated his family. And you know, at the end of the day, nobody really deserves to suffer, but then you, you, you start to hear some of the uh, things that his father did, the abuse that this guy took. And you're realizing, oh, he was, you know, finally just had enough and it bottled, it boiled over and he just went apeshit on. I would even go as far to say that his father is as much a contributor to his crimes as he is. Danny Rowling carried them out. But why was he as messed up as he was because of his father? And that's the main thing. You see this pattern all the time with these serial killers is that they have either 
huge mommy issues or as we would normally do mommy issues so now we have daddy and mommy issues daddy and mommy issues this has got to be 10 times worse you know both of your parents the people who are supposed to support you love you and shelter you from all harm are making you fucked up at the end of the day no wonder why this guy turned out the way he did in August 1990, Rowling began a murdering spree, killing and mutilating five college students. On August 24th, he broke into the apartment of two 17-year-old freshmen, Sonia Larson and Christina Powell. Powell was asleep on the downstairs couch, and Rowling stood over her, watching her sleep, before moving upstairs to see who else occupied the apartment. Upstairs, he found Larson asleep in her room. He taped her mouth shut and then stabbed her to death. Rowling went back downstairs, taped Powell's mouth closed, and bound her wrists. He undressed her, raped her, and then forced her face down on the floor, stabbing her five times in the back. Once the girls were dead, he posed them in sexually provocative positions, took a shower, in the girl's apartment and left. So you said, you you just said a a couple minutes ago that he idolized Ted Bundy. This almost sounds identical to a Ted Bundy murder that took place in the same state. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy. So it was like almost like a copycat killing to an extent where he was kind of trying to, you know, relive something that maybe Ted Bundy did because he was obsessed with the guy. Oh, so many of his crimes. And then what we'll talk about later in the show, um, you know, the way that he portrayed himself in the media mirror Ted Bundy so closely. I don't know that he was as narcissistic as Ted Bundy, But I would go as far to say that uh, Ted Bundy was definitely a role model as far as how he carried out his crimes. I'm not familiar so much as all the murders that Ted Bundy committed, but I think you can see the pattern of an actual serial killer here because he does the the posing. You know, serial killers will either do posing or they will do something else where they try to throw investigators off. Well, they'll add like certain clues that send the investigators in a different direction. And in this case, Rawling, he uh, posed the victims in a sexual position or something like that because that's what he that's what he got off from. Well, and I think it goes back to having very little respect for his mother because he saw her abused and come back to his father in that abusive relationship. And so he had no respect for his father. He had no respect for his mother. And he starts carrying out these very sexually motivated murders. And you have to think, you know, he just had no respect for women in general because of the way he saw his mother treated, yet she returned to that situation so many times. Yeah, and it became a normal thing for him to just be like, oh, well, well, you know, women are trash. Women are, you know, I love my mother, but women are, you know, they, they can just be controlled easily. I mean, yeah, there's there's my example right there, my mom. She, she kept coming back to my piece of sack of shit dad. So the following day, August 25th, 1990, Rowling continued with his spree. He broke into the apartment of 18-year-old Christina Hoyt. Guys, if we haven't already said this, listener discretion is advised from here on out. This one gets pretty gruesome. Hoyt was not at home at the time that Rowling broke in, so he waited for her. When she came home, Rowling attacked her from behind. He put her in a chokehold, taped her mouth shut and her wrist together, undressed and raped her, then stabbed her to death. After she was dead, Rowling decapitated Hoyt, posing her head on a shelf, facing the rest of her remains. What the fuck? That's like, you know, I've heard a lot of gruesome, horrible ways to kill somebody, but that really, that sticks out to me because, you, you, like I, we, we, we had episode one, Ed Kemper, the stuff he did with, with the oh, heads. Oh, with his he mother's head. His head. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, he took this woman's head and posed it facing her 
her her decapitated body i mean that that that's fucked up it dude. was just next level humiliation yeah, you can up. almost see how his crimes are growing and this is literally a day after he did his first murder he's boom he's right at it again there was no cooling off period for danny rolling like you see with a lot of serial killers he was right back at it well and some serial killers too they either stalk their victims or they you know, at least have a little bit of time in between killings. You know, we, but Ted Bundy did that, right? Ted Bundy went from killing, he went and killed like how many women in a row? Right. So yeah, that's, I mean, that, that, that's horrible. I mean, it's horrible. I mean, talk about just the degrading thing. You kill somebody and you leave them naked and you leave them in a ditch or something like that. But then this guy cuts the head off of this victim, leaves their body naked and then poses their head facing their body. That's utter humiliation. So this is a college town. This is a university of Florida area. So you can imagine this is the beginning of the fall semester. People start freaking out. Kids who were students there actually withdrew from the college at this time because they were so terrified of living in this area. The students who remained, um, they never went anywhere alone. They stayed in in groups. They slept, you know, in the apartments of their friends. This town was absolutely terrified by what Rowling is doing at this point. Like I said, to the point that these kids were packing up and leaving town. Yeah, we heard that clip just before we got into the story about how gun stores are running out of guns and ammunition because they everybody was freaked out that this was going on. I mean, two like these murders are happening simultaneously almost. Like there's no cooling off period. There's no time to figure out what the fuck is going on. It's happening bam 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 bam. So rolling didn't stop there. 2 days later, August 27th, he broke into the apartment of 23-year-olds Tracy Paulez and Manny Taboda. Manny would be his only male victim in this spree. Taboda was asleep in his bedroom and Rowling attacked him first. They struggled, but Rowling eventually overtook and killed Taboda. Paulez, who had been asleep upstairs when the struggle began, came downstairs to find Rowling with Taboda's body. She tried to lock herself in her room, but Rowling broke down the door. He taped her mouth and wrists, cut her clothes off, raped her, and then stabbed her to death. Rowling posed Paulus's body before leaving the apartment. He later said that he left Manny Taboda as is because he was too heavy. He couldn't move his body. So that was the, that was the only male victim that we, that we know of right now. And that we know of right now right now in this part of the story but um he he was in bed right i mean he he had to fight him and he was in the bedroom i think because i remember hearing the story like he was he was left in in bed he actually was laying in yes he was too big he couldn't move him i don't know if rolling broke into this apartment not knowing that a man lived there maybe it caught him off guard too like they said he struggled um but eventually he overtook him but he just left his body as is I know there's some serial killers, like when they kill the male and they want to pose them, they will like leave both victims in a probably a sexual position. I mean, they will leave them in a a sexual position, a humiliating sexual position. And maybe that's why that didn't happen. Like you said, because he admitted maybe he wasn't strong enough to move. Yeah. He said Toboto was too big. He couldn't move him. But he overpowered him. So maybe that was the adrenaline pumping in his system. Or maybe the dude was just asleep when he, you know, he was in the bed. You're hearing the story from the guy who committed the crime. So on September 7th, 1990, Rowling was arrested in Ocala, Florida on a burglary charge. Police became suspicious though, and began attempting to link Rowling to more than just burglary. Rowling was living in a campsite in a wooded area close to many of the local students' apartment buildings. When police searched his camp, they found tools that matched markings made at the murder scenes. The most damning piece of evidence, though, came in the form of Rowling's audio diaries. Rowling thought of himself as somewhat of a poet, and in his camp they found recordings Rowling had made of himself singing country songs that he had composed alluding to the crimes. Rowling was officially charged with murder in November 1991. 
So this guy was a, he was homeless basically. He was a drifter. Like he, this wasn't like an RV park no, or anything. This he was, was like a, this he was living in a tent. He was legit a drifter living in a campsite, probably looking like a damn hippie, just sitting out there, you know, writing his songs, playing his guitar. You know, like some of the clips that we've heard. And so police, Easy writer. yeah. So police get suspicious and they're like, this dude lives in the area. You know, you know how college towns are. A lot of these off campus facilities are kind of clumped together. That's how these apartments were, where the murders were committed. And uh, he was legit living in the woods outside some of these apartment buildings. Well, where I grew up, uh, it's in central Ohio, but just uh, south of us is Ohio University in Athens. And they actually have one of the biggest Halloween parties in the country. But it's almost that same way. There's all them buildings just so clustered close to each other, but it's in the middle of the hills. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a big country area so i could see i could see it i get i could see that kind of thing you know so i mean he he did did he stalk these victims or he just this is happenstance like he just happened upon or he you know no, i think he was absolutely out there watching them he made his camp in a place where he couldn't be found you know readily accessible to most people he's living in a tent you know so i think he was absolutely watching these people i know that one of the apartment buildings uh, they had actually left their sliding door unlocked uh, and that's how he broke in to murder those other two now i think in the in tracy paulus and manny tobota he actually had to pry the door open but that's how these students were living you know it was so so unheard of for something like that to happen here that they actually left their doors open but it wasn't unheard of because Ted Bundy had been doing this stuff before. So you would think there would be some kind of, but, you know, people think that this guy's apprehended, the danger is over. And then they right. just get back to their normal life and slowly but surely generation stuff happens. And then, you know, you, you would never expect another me. serial killer to hit yeah. in such a similar area. Yep. Rowling's face became well known in the local media, not just for his crimes, though. He became well-known for singing while he was in court. He used the media spotlight to sing hymns and original songs that he wrote while in prison. Included in those were love songs that he wrote for true crime writer Sandra London, whom Rowling met and fell in love with while imprisoned. So this almost sounds another like similar Ted Bundy story right here. Oh, yeah. So a little bit about Sandra London. She was a Florida native. She was a true crime author. And Danny Rowling was not the first prisoner that she met and fell in love with. Oh, really? Oh, really? Oh, here we go. So basically what she would do, she would go into these prisons and interview these murderers for her books. She worked for a television series. Um, so she was well-versed in kind of the prison system. So the first prisoner that Sandra London fell in love with was a, a suspected serial killer named G.J. Schaefer, who was also from Florida. He was in prison because he confessed to killing nearly 30 women. So she went in, she started doing a story about him. However, all oh, their relationship was cut short because in the 1970s, Schaefer was stabbed to death by his cellmate. So she fell in love with this guy. So she fell in love with this guy. She went in, she was interviewing him, probably for one of her books. They start this hot and heavy romance, and then he's murdered. How do you have a hot and heavy romance in prison? I mean... How did Ted Bundy fathered a, a, a child? Yeah, well, I guess the manipulation, you just got to manipulate the prison guards to let you do whatever Hashtag you want. I mean, conjugal visits. Yeah, well, fuck. I bet you if I was in prison, they wouldn't let me have conjugal visits. Let's not find out. Yeah, okay. let's not find out. So, Shay, we've got a really interesting clip that I think you should throw in here of Danny Rowling actually talking about and defending Sandra London to the media. Do you want to play that? Yeah, we'll play that. Let's take a short break and we'll play that when we come back. And uh, it's kind of it's kind of weird when you listen to it because there's this whole big debacle going on with with financial stuff. People think they're making money off this story. So let's take a break and we'll get back into it after this. 
Hey, it's Brendan Shea. And Annie Weebs. And if you like murder, legends, hauntings, and true crime, tune into Serial Spirits, the podcast on Paranormal UK Radio Network. Serial Spirits, only on paukradio.com. Stay creepy, you kids. Hey guys, it's Annie Weebs, co-host of Serial Spirits podcast. Picture this. It's a dark, stormy Tuesday evening, and you're fiending for some ghoulish lore and true crime. Look no further than Paranormal Warehouse, where you can find me, Annie Weebs, on RU Weebs Live every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Paranormal Warehouse. Tune in, listen to me tell tales of true crime, ghoulish gore, all of this and more with some of the most famous names in the paranormal. Paranormal Warehouse, Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Are you weebs live? We'll see you there. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the second half of Serial Spirits, the podcast. We are covering the Gainesville Ripper. So before the break, we were talking about Danny Rowling defending his love, Sandra London, to the media and this clip that we want to play. Uh, Shay, I, th- I just think you should do that right now. Yeah, we're going to play Because it goes downhill from here. We're going to play this clip and, and it's on YouTube. You can see this clip on YouTube and it's actually on Sandra London's YouTube page. She published it in 2008. It's a, uh, I think it was a media blitz that they, that he did. He They asked him to make a statement and he comes out. He's all like, he looks like a normal dude, like just whatever. Comes in, sits down. The reporter asked him, you know, like, what you, you want to interview you? And he says, basically, you know, my, my lawyers told me not to give you statements. I just have something that I want to say, a statement that I made. And it's about which Weebs will get into here. But he basically is defending Sandra London. So let's listen to that and listen to the key things that he says, because I think they're both manipulators. I think that they both manipulate each other, Sandra London and... Well, absolutely. They both had something to gain from it. And you'll realize it after you hear this clip. And then we talk about what Danny Rowling is speaking about in this clip. So this clip's about maybe three and a half, four minutes long. So just bear with us. Listen to it and just really listen in depth to this guy because he sounds really, you know, just like a normal dude. And he's going to talk about food and everything else. So just let's let's listen to this clip and then uh, we'll 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 tell you a little bit of the background behind it. Thank you. So these guys have all told me they promised that they won't tell anyone. They're just going to ask you how the food is here. Uh, well, complain about it. They said they promised they won't. <laughs> it ain't so bad. No. Not really, no. It's prison food, though, you know. There's a big difference between that and McDonald's. And the uh, Cajun food? You don't get Cajun here? No, we don't get any Cajun food here. <laughs> um, Miss Bellick, um, my lawyers advised me not to make any, uh, you know, answer any questions, but I have about a three-minute... Uh, statement prepared. Would you like to listen to that? Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. You can can go ahead and read it now if you like. I I figured there was something you wanted to say. Yes, ma'am. At this time, I feel it necessary to comment on the blatant statements Mr. James H. Williams has made concerning Sandra London, Bobby Lewis, prison authorities, and myself. I'm compelled to bring this matter into the light because Williams has caused undue pain and problems for those mentioned and on his own tried to muddy the waters and hinder the investigation in progress. Number one, Miss London and myself have been corresponding for almost a year now. Regardless of what Williams has said, Miss London is of the highest caliber, sincere and honest, a woman of extraordinary talents. If I were her, I would sue Williams for slander and defamation of character. She did not deserve the things he said or what the Gainesville Sun printed about her. It's just not so. 
I do not know William's reason to do such a vicious thing. It was totally unmerited or called for. I think Williams has left himself subject to be charged with criminal mischief and or obstruction of justice. Number two. Sandra London is a colorful and bright woman, intelligent, talented, and it's a shame the way the media has bashed her as of late. She hasn't done anything to deserve that. Sandra is a worthy soul who only tries to bring the very best out of all she does. Number three, Sandra London did not seek me out. I inquired her services because I had seen some of her work, namely a screenplay under the title of Redbone about the dramatic story of Bobby Lewis's escape from death row, which would impress, impress anyone. And so I wanted her to do my story. Sandra London is not, I repeat, not using me, period. No one is using me. I don't care what her previous lawyer, Chet Dillinger, said about her. Can you imagine that? Her own lawyer sold her up the river. If I was a client of his, I think I'd find somebody else to represent me for fear that one day Chet Dittlinger would have something publicly to say about me. Over the past 180 days, Sandra and myself have tried by protocol and through proper channels to get her approved to visit me. And she was allowed to visit me behind the glass once. Number five. Any and all parties involved in the investigation underway concerning the Gainesville murders have been and will be dealt with in an honorable fashion. The wheels of justice may turn slow, but they do turn. You don't ask of justice, it asks of you. Number six, the prison officials here at FSP have not made any deals with me, period. Nor have they made any promises to Bobby Lewis or myself, period. I've not been coerced into making any statements, period. Number seven, Miss London represents me as editor, agent, and media go-between. From this point on, I shall make no further statements to the press unless Sandra London arranges it. If you wish to speak to me, speak to Miss London. Number eight, any further statements you wish at this time, please consult my lawyers, Mr. Richard Parker or Johnny Kearns, who are excellent lawyers for the defense and very capable of answering any other questions. I have nothing further to say. Thank you, and good day. That's it? You can't answer any questions for me? No, ma'am, I'm sorry. Is it is it true that you are talking through Mr. Lewis to I, investigators? I, I can't make any further comments. Good day. Is it true that you had anything to do with the murders at all? Oh, I still got this on, don't I? Okay, so, weebs. We, we hear that, and... The main thing that sticks out in my head the whole time is that he is so, he's passionately defending her. He's saying how wonderful of a person she is, that, you know, she is just, you know, not, not a bad person for doing what she's doing. So what is the, there's, he mentions quite a few names here. He mentions a, a newspaper article that came out. Like what, what is the story behind all this shit? Okay. So what he's talking about is an article from the Gainesville Sun. And the one that I found that I think he's probably referring to uh, was released in, I believe it was August 2005, is called Waiting for Justice, Crime Pays. And it has this huge picture of Sandra London holding up the book that she wrote about Rawling called The Making of a Serial Killer. Now, what you don't see when she's holding up this book is that, okay, yes, this is a book that she wrote about Danny Rowling, but Danny Rowling didn't have just one talent of music. Danny Rowling also considered himself to be a little bit of an artist. And so while he was in prison, he did all these drawings and these sketches. And so Sandra London writes this book about him, The Making of a Serial Killer, and it's illustrated with all of these drawings that Rowling did while he was in prison. So it's based off his drawings or she just includes his drawings? I think she just included the drawings because she wanted him to have some type of input behind, besides just his story. Actually, I would love to read this book. I think I'm probably going to buy a copy of it, not to profit them, but just because I want to see what the illustrations are in this book. Well, he says that too. He says, any if you want to contact me, contact me through Sandra London, not through his, not through his lawyers. Oh, no. Through Sandra London, like he, he basically makes her like his agent, basically. Like if you want to 
have an interview with me, you need to contact Sandra was his direct link to the outside world. She was going in to see him to get information to write this book. But basically what he's saying was uh, they fell in love and the media portrayed her in this terrible way. Like she was trying to make a dime off of his crime. And I think when this interview took place with Rawlings that we just heard the clip, I think that it was before like uh, they actually were allowed to see each other face to face because he says we're going through all the proper channels to make sure that we can see each other. We've seen each other through the glass, but we want to have more interactive hashtag no conjugal visits. Yeah, yet. exactly. I think that's what it was about. Probably so. so. Wouldn't that be like your number one um like the thing that you wanted if you were in prison. You oh think? yeah. Especially if you fall in love with a chick, it's like you have no, you know, have no contact with the outside world. You were the bunch of dudes, but let's all the talk time. about him falling in love. So he's committed all these horrible crimes against women, against women. Yeah. He's mutilated them. He's decapitated them. He's humiliated their remains. We talked about Ed Kemper in our very first episode and what he did to his mother after she was dead. My God. I mean, and so you see that in rolling him kind of following that same pattern. Yet now he's in prison. He can't get out and murder and he's in love. He's Shane. got no control anymore. He doesn't have any control of anything. And he's got somebody who's paying him. There's attention. the key. Yeah. Control. Control. So and- he finds this woman. And actually, Sandra London was not a stupid woman. She had a very high SAT score. She had a college degree in literature, I think. Like we said before, she was an author. She had worked on several really well-known true crime TV series at that point. This was an intelligent woman. And so maybe he felt like intellectually he met his match with the opposite sex where he had never found that before. And I just want to say this right now. We're going one-sided. Like, this is all from, you know, research that we've done. Sandra London, if you're listening, we took that clip off your YouTube page. If you are listening, I would love to hear your side of the story. You know, if you get a chance and you happen to come upon this podcast, Serial Spirits, we're talking about you. We're talking about your relationship with Danny Rawling. Uh, I would love for you to come on here and just tell us exactly what happened you're inside. I mean, you were on the inside of this. You were, you got to sit face to face with this guy. And I would love to hear your side of the story because, you know, we're going on one side right now and it would be sweet to have your side of the story. So if you're listening, hit us up and we would love, love to talk to you. So Shay, do you know who else ended up with some of Danny Rawlings artwork? No, who did? So there's this website called murderauction.com. 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 So basically this, well, hold on, I want to look this up right now. Okay. So the owner of this website, Todd Bohannon, um, had access to these pictures that Rawling drew while he was in prison, including two that were on the website, a portrait of uh, Charles Bronson, who was the actor in Death Wish. And a drawing of Michael Jackson with his hair on fire. Well, that makes sense. Actually, that's prophetic, right? <laughs> that's that's pretty prophetic with all the stuff going on right now. So Holy shit. So he puts all of these uh, pieces of artwork up on this page, which is where I imagine uh, Zach Bagans just probably bought Ted Bundy's glasses. Well, he also has, uh, what's his name? David Koresh is... Uh, was it his car Camaro? I think he's got, it's a Camaro. I think he like, remember the ghost adventures live where he drove up in, oh, yeah. in David Koresh's car. Actually, Weebs, it's still up. It's still a website. And actually the, uh, quote underneath, uh, the, uh, what was it? Serial killer auction.com. Is that what it is? Murder auction. Mur- murder auction. Yeah, yeah. And we're not it's, it's, promoting it's this at yeah, all. Please no. don't go out and it's buy shit from this page. It's murderauction.com. I'm looking at it right now. And underneath murderauction.com, there's a quote. Okay, there's a quote. And it says, everybody's got to have a hobby. Ed Gein. Oh, no. They <laughs> yeah. quote Ed Gein? Fuck yeah. And, <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it, it's a legit website. And they have shit on here. Like right now, there's like artwork. There's whatever. Like don't, don't go to the website no, and buy shit. No, don't do it. We're, we're going to tell you this just because it, it leads into what he was talking about with uh, Sandra London. But there were drawings by Fuck Danny Rowling that started at like 
$25, all the way up to an oil painting that was like $1,200. The bidding starts at over $1,000. Like, mind blown. So who's making the shit. who's making the money? Is the, is he making money off this shit when he's selling his artwork or How what? How could he? People in prison can't make money. Yes, they do off. make money. How? They do. They have jobs in prison where they can make money and they have like ties to the outside world still. Not they from can, like, this kind of stuff. Absolutely not. Well, they just did. They interviewed what's his name? Um, uh, Cohen. The Senate just, you know, and they said, uh, do you have uh, uh, deals in the work to where you can make book or money off books and movies or whatever? And I guess he can. He's going to go to federal prison and still be able to tell his story and make money somehow off of it. That's just messed up, though. Yeah, that's fucked up. Yeah, no, don't go and, and buy anything from this website. It just played into that part of the story that we were talking about. So let's talk about some of the evidence from this case. Yeah, because I, you know, you said that there's somebody else that they had, uh, they, they thought somebody else was a prime suspect. I mean, they had another suspect in this case. Right. So I want to know exactly what ended up getting him convicted. So DNA evidence was obtained from bloodstained bathrobes and sheets, along with hair collected from multiple murder scenes. Rowling also told police that he had dumped a knife on the University of Florida campus that he had used during some of his crimes. He even led police to the place where he supposedly left this knife. Yeah, but wasn't there somebody that they had? That he Rowling's wasn't the only suspect in this case. Correct. So the police went to this site where he told them they left the knife. They excavated it. They never found it. So the DNA evidence is sent off for processing. Rowling is already in jail, but another suspect emerges. Ed Humphrey was an 18-year-old freshman at the University of Florida, and he lived in the same apartment building as Tracy Paulez and Manny Tabota. Humphrey had been diagnosed as bipolar and had been off his medications and was accused of harassing his neighbors, which led to him being evicted from the apartment complex. During his breakdown, he actually assaulted his grandmother, was arrested, and was put in prison. His bail was set at a million dollars. Holy shit. Was, it, it, was that without the 10%? I think what happened was the police saw him as such a suspect, a, a person of interest. They did not want him out of prison. And, you know, a, a typical assault, that's not going to put you at a million dollars. They're like, this guy lived in the same apartment building as two of our murdered students. We can't afford to let him out. You set bail at a million dollars. The problem was his grandmother dropped the charges. Yeah, but sometimes can't the state pick up the charges in that case or they just they didn't have sufficient evidence to even hold him for anything? I don't know what happened, but... While all of this is going on, while they're looking at Ed Humphrey as a prime suspect, the DNA evidence comes back and actually links Danny Rowling to the murder scenes. He had, their, I mean, DNA. DNA is what basically convicted him. DNA convicted him. And remember, this is the early 1990s. So DNA was not processed. Like I said, they used hair samples. I don't think they even really process hair samples anymore. But they did have the blood stains from the bathrobes and the bed sheets. And the DNA evidence eventually led them back to Danny Rowling. Well, and you saw that with a lot of cases back in the day, like in the 80s and the 70s. They knew science was going to progress. So they kept all this stuff on file because they knew someday that be the right science. There would be the right science to basically be able to forensically connect somebody to the crime. Correct. So another interesting point about the evidence in this case, which this is kind of weird to me. In 2008, all of the remaining evidence from this case was destroyed by Florida authorities. But before it was destroyed, they legitimately laid it out on tables and let media, uh, the the local media, come and take a look at it and like take pictures of it and basically just kind of um, go through all of this remaining evidence before it was destroyed, which is very odd to me. Okay, so you want to know why the evidence was destroyed in 2008? Let's backtrack a little bit. So it took nearly four years to bring him to trial, and Rowling loved every second of the media attention. He was a rock star. He was. He was a rock star. He looked at himself like Ted Bundy. 
However, before the trial could officially begin in 1994, Rowling shocked the investigators by pleading guilty to all charges. On April 20th, 1994, Rowling was sentenced to death for his crimes. Without going to trial, he just confessed. He just confessed. So this evidence basically sat in wherever, in this police department. And by 2008, the families wanted closure. And that was kind of what they said, was that they, you know, the the crime was solved, the damage had been done. If this is the only closure that we can give these families, let's do it. And so all the evidence from the case, they laid it out on tables, let the media take pictures of it, and then it was destroyed. So in 2008, was Rollins still alive or was he already killed? No. Rowling died on October 25th, 2006, by lethal injection. Okay. But the story didn't end there. After Rowling's arrest, police in his hometown of Shreveport reached out to Florida authorities about a triple murder that occurred in the town in November 1989. The victims, 55-year-old William Grissom, his 24-year-old daughter Julie, and Julie's 8-year-old son Sean, had been murdered in their home as they were making dinner. After the murders, Julie's body had been mutilated, cleaned, and posed. Just before his execution, Rowling gave his spiritual advisor a handwritten note confessing to murdering the family. So this sack of shit killed an eight-year-old kid. An eight-year-old boy. He That's did. when I said before it wasn't as always... His, that's what I said before. It wasn't his only male victim. He had three total male victims, and one of them was eight years old. So he is just like his dad, a sack of shit, but worse, far worse. So basically the timeline is he actually starts in his hometown of Shreveport, 1985, 1989 with a triple murder. Then 1990, he goes on, he assaults his father, gouges out his eye, cuts off his ear, and then um, goes on to murder the five college students. So he confesses to everything in 1994, doesn't stand trial. He's executed in 2006 by lethal injection. Well, I hope that that rock star's rolling in hell and singing his tunes to Satan because uh, what a sack of shit. What you, a sack of shit. You want to know what I also find very interesting are these murderers who are on death row right before their execution are allowed this like super fancy meal. So I found an article that told what he had for his very last meal. So Rowling consumed a final dinner of lobster tail, shrimp, a baked potato, strawberry cheesecake, and sweet tea. He gave no final statement, but guess what he did right before he was executed? Let me guess. He uh, sang? He sang a gospel song. Did they give him a guitar so we could like finish out, you know, a final, you know, no, thing? I don't or he, think just, so. he just sang a cappella. I think he just did a little a cappella tune. So he had his nice dinner and sang his song and then he was dead. It pisses me off that these fuckers get these kind of meals like that. Like he, in that clip we listened to, he talks about the food. They don't have Cajun food in jail. You know what I mean? And like they give this guy a nice Southern cooked meal like fuck you well, you I, shouldn't get any who you're gonna die who the care who cares if you're hungry or not you're about to die so i listened to a podcast and, and read an article the other day about murderers people who are being executed their final meals and i thought it was really interesting and, and basically the states that still do this there are some states that don't um but the states that do they have a, a price cap yeah it's like basically a amount yeah basically they give them this amount of money and if what they want can be covered then they just give it to them and it's so if you guys have a chance look it up maybe eventually we'll do a story about murderers final meals because some of them are, are, are pretty bizarre maybe if that happened to me i'd be like you know what before you inject me with this poison can you just inject me with pbr that's gonna be my final it would meal. just be pb and you know what you probably wouldn't be the only one some of them just want a cigarette some of them just want like a gallon of ice cream and some of them just go full monty here with you know lobster tail and shrimp and uh cheesecake and sweet tea yeah well fuck that guy dude <laughs> fuck him there's a there's a podcast that i listen to too called small town murder and that's one of the things they do if at the end of the at the end of the story if the guy's convicted of 
he's sentenced to death basically they, they they go over the meals that they get and some of these guys get the stupidest shit like oh i just want a quart of sherbet ice cream like fuck you dude like whatever man it's bizarre so shay we gotta wrap this one up but the last thing that i want to read is a direct quote from danny rowling that i found just remarkable after all the shit that we have talked about tonight so Danny Rowling said, quote, There is much I'd like to say, Your Honor, about our world and my beliefs. However, I feel whatever I might have to say is overshadowed by the suffering I've caused. I regret with all my heart what my hand has done. I have taken what I cannot return. If only I could bend back the hands of that ageless clock and change the past. All but alas, I am not the keeper of time, only a small part of history and the legacy of man's fall from grace. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Wow, what a poet. You know what? Let's not forget about the victims in this case. And in Florida, there is, uh, on the university, there is a wall that's that has all the names of his victims uh, that's still there to this day. So, you know, we're not praising this guy. We're not trying to popularize him by any means, but we're telling the story and what depravity is that he committed. So keep the victims in mind in this thing. And let's not praise this sack of shit at all. No, not at all. Remember the families. And uh, that's that's basically the point in doing this. So thank you guys for listening to episode 10 of Serial Spirits, the podcast. You can follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Serial Spirits. Follow us on Twitter at Serial Spirits. You can listen to us every other Wednesday on the Paranormal UK Radio Network at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, www.paukradio.com. Any final thoughts you want to add there, Weebs? Bye-bye.